0: Welcome to the Canopy IQ podcast. In this episode, host Adam Walensky is joined by Dr. Sarah Kyle, founder and principal of LE3 Solutions. Sarah is a leading voice in the senior living world and is a driver of industry collaboration in the aging ecosystem. She's also, in her own words, a customer experience geek. In this episode, Sarah discusses how LE3 Solutions is redefining what it means to be healthy and happy for our aging population, the diverse set of care and solutions within the senior care industry, and new approaches to mental well-being in senior care. The Canopy IQ podcast is presented by Canopy, a digital advertising agency specializing in location-based marketing. Learn more by visiting CanopyAdCo.com.
1: Welcome, Sarah. Before we get into LE3's vision, I'd really like to start by hearing a bit more about your background and how it led you to found a company devoted to improving resident well-being.
2: Sure. Thanks for having me, Adam. And thank you, Canopy. This question always makes me laugh because I think that The norm is people set out of like, I want to create a business or be an entrepreneur. And sometimes you just fall into something. Um, But from a background, really quickly, how I got into senior living through all of my graduate school work, I just kind of found this affinity of working with older people, whether that was through the local senior center, designing programs, um, cardiac rehab. And then I went on this tangent of I really think I want to be a professor and I want to teach. And I knew at that moment I didn't want to teach anyone under the age of 18. I just thought it would be not fun. Um, And as I kept studying, I kind of found myself doing some odd work through my PhD um, working for a senior rehab provider. And then went and said, hey, this whole activities program, um, can we do it differently? It was all skilled nursing assisted living. And so just wanted to take the background of exercise science and kinesiology and what was then sport and kind of uh, rec management marketing and, and try to put it into the context of senior living. So stayed with that company for, you know, four or five years, um, and then took a break from getting cut because of resources uh, and then went to holiday retirement and was there for two and a half years. And that's where we really started looking into this idea of resident experience, which has then transcended to now customer experience and why I say that kind of geek title. Um, but again, Loved what I was doing. COVID hit and I was eliminated again. So it was now what? And that was, let's just start this thing and see if we can, see if I can give it a run and leverage the networking connections I made. And it almost three years now and it worked out. So here we are.
1: Oh, what a, what a great success story. I mean, and COVID has figured so prominently in so many people's lives. And just to hear how it not only impacted you, but kind of like you know, force you to uh, not course correct necessarily, but try something new to experiment, to pivot. I think a lot of, a lot of innovation came out of the pandemic. I mean, obviously with tragic side effects, but you know, one of the blessings there has been that in any situation like this, it forces people to reevaluate. It forces people to maybe change their mindset and perceptions and, and try something different. What are some of the goals that you're, you know, are most exciting for you at LE3 and and really, what are you most optimistic about?
2: So the cool thing about LE3, and this has been um, from the onset, is that I sit in the middle of two different um, audiences. Yeah. One is that vendor solution side that is either creating, delivering, implementing products or solutions for really this aging ecosystem, not just senior living, but what are some of these innovations and new products that can really change how people live in the best way and change how staff or caregivers, whatever that is, perform their job duties. And so work on that side. But um, in addition to that, get to work still with owners and operators and groups, looking at their larger goal or strategy behind, you know, what kind of started out as activities. Um, I think that's such an antiquated word, but then moving into this idea of resident engagement. But where we've pivoted forward and where I continue to go is this idea of customer experience. Because everything that we're doing with inside the community needs to impact the external community, families, staff, prospects, residents. And so it is much bigger than just what we do inside the walls. But what I'm excited about and the sentiment I keep hearing is coming back down to basics, this coupling of doing really well at the basics, establishing a foundation, and then layering on top of that innovation, but not innovation just from technology, more innovation of looking at our processes. And so trying to help both entities create goals of what that looks like. Um, And so I'm just excited to almost simplify a lot of what we've Thrown jargon and ideas at since COVID and even prior to COVID, but what does that look like operationally in the day to day?
1: Yeah, thank you. That was uh, that was an excellent summary. Um, You know, sort of taking a a quick pivot to just the branding side of things. You know, when I was researching your background and your services, I kept going back to your website and that very prominent image of the of the of the stacked rocks. How does it figure into LE3's core values and and your company branding?
2: Sure. So LE3, this is funny, what most people don't know, it started out as Life Elevated 3. And the idea when I started was life is meant to be lived upright. That's kind of how I came into the space and how I want to remain. Um, And the 3 is what I call body, mind, and community. And as long as we focus on those facets of our life, then... I believe we can live life in an elevated position. Um, But the stacking of the rocks. So I I love this too. In 2017, um, we went to Hawaii and my stepdad had just died five months earlier. And we took my mom, or actually, sorry, five weeks earlier. And we took my mom. Um, And it was like, mom, you just got to get away. And because I had a six-month-old at the time, we did morning walks every morning at 5 a.m. and we would walk and I would push him in the stroller and I kept seeing the stacked rocks everywhere. And they're right there on the side of the road. They're, and it's just this way that people go and they stack rocks. But what was so interesting to me about it is the rocks are all different shapes. And to make these rocks stack and stay is not as easy as it looks, but that found. And so we would start doing this. My kids would start doing it, but that foundational rock piece that you choose is what the entire stack is dependent upon. And so when I think about this idea of strategic advising and enhancing what we do on the customer experience side, we have to start at the bottom. We have to get the foundation right. And then we build up that hierarchy um, in terms of needs or wants or desires. And so in most of the work I do, I find myself going back really to basics and that foundational piece. And if that's in place and strong, then we can build from there but if not we have to start at the bottom most people do not want to start
1: at the bottom right right well well i'm never going to look at that that uh, symbol the same way again now i i feel like I'm, i owe you a debt of gratitude for really you know for not just explaining it but uh in a very i don't know spiritually uh accessible way because it is rare to see a, a company brand just, you know, uh, manifests itself in a way that is directly um, speaking to, you know, it's not a fancy tagline. It really is. No, (laughs) It's about your mission. It's about what you do. It's and it's very foundational. So speaking of LE3's mission, you know, you're, you really you're, you're focused around health and well-being and your call to action is to reimagine, you know, specifically around what it means for for an aging population to be healthy, to be happy, and fulfilled. How you know how does reimagining, uh, you know, what does it what does it entail in terms of specific and concrete actions?
2: You know, as we get more research um, delivered to us in terms of aging and what is successful aging, what is longevity and vibrancy, and all of the factors that it's contingent upon. That reimagining is looking at what we currently do of how we support older adults and think one step further than just congregation. And I mean that from a sense that if we were able and our impetus for senior living was to bring people into a communal place for support and services, that's one part of the equation of well being. I think the other part is that it has to be informed and deliberate. And what I mean by that is well-being is a it's a broad term and it's interpreted differently for every person. But well-being is, it's something that you, you find in your day. And so when I talk about being deliberate, it needs to be built into the environment and simply building structures with rooms for social happenings to occur or a dining room where communal um, dining nutrition occurs, that's not enough. We have to be very deliberate in how we're designing the communities and how it affords people opportunities and how they're motivated to chase after some of those designs of well-being that we know need to be there. Um, One is that we have to move, right? So what, and we need to be outside to do it. What does the outdoor space look like? Um, How are we motivating people to engage, not just in a a scheduled component of activities or offerings, but what is the culture around this community aspect? And how do we get to know our neighbors and socialize and share strengths and talents and become part of a community to really participate in it? And that it's not just built into the physical space, but it's built into the programming. It's built into the design of the offering. All along the way, Reiterating the why behind it right now, I just don't want you to come to do something because it's a communal setting and this is what we do and this is our, our schedule. Um, It's so much deeper than that and how that participation and that support and interaction um, and movement and and cognitive stimulation will help drive well-being.
1: Uh, you know, speaking of well-being and the way you extend, not just that mindset, um, but the way, you know, that you have offered your services throughout the ecosystem as a whole. I mean, I was stunned by the array of platforms that um, that you partner with and the diversity of solutions. Is there a common thread that unifies these service providers, you know, and Um, and, and really what do you look for in a partnership or do you think you can bring the most value?
2: It is, I think it's humbling to me to look at the amount of companies I've been able to interact with, whether that's on the vendor solution side or the owner operator side and how diverse they really are from large to small to startup to, you know, a top five organization. Um, in the senior living space. But the one common thread that I always look at is the why. The why of not just why do you feel like you have a project or solution that needs to, I'll start with that side first, be um, delivered to our space or to older adults. The why is usually the easy part to define. But I think it is a marriage of the why, plus the ability to drive revenue. And one can't be more powerful than the other. On the investor side, I hear that a lot. Like we have to just go out. We need to get contract sales. We need to do that. And there's some people that look at this space as just a dollar sign, which is laughable to me um, when you know the, the inner workings. Is there money here? Is there money in this? aging demographic? Absolutely. But it's not as stereotypical as people think. Um, I think the other thing is that the residents that we serve have a very discerning eye for value. And so just to expect them to pay more money for something they don't find value in um, is something I enjoy. So it goes back to what is your why? And have you stayed true to the why? Why you got started And what you want to do with that why. And then you pivot and you learn as you grow and and as residents and communities or aging adults kind of help shape what your product should look like. But I can honestly say there's been companies I've decided not to work with. Um, A lot of the work that I do is around messaging and, and branding, but not from a technical marketing, I would say. But just trying to deliver the story and the why in an empathetic way that people working or residing in a community would see it differently than just um, a new feature, because you have to earn that trust. And what I've discovered is I love to write. um, If I can't write about something, if I can't write about a company, I know I can't work with it. I can't work with that company because it doesn't seem authentic. And I want that to be. I think that has been what has allowed me to work with so many different types of organizations and companies is because I have been authentic in choosing those partners. And I don't, I don't write for fluff.
1: Right. Yeah, the uh, seniors are far more discerning than I think they're often given credit for being, yes, they're historically brand loyal. Many of them, you know, uh aged in place and had brands that they trusted. But the minute the quality uh, equation shifted, you know, they'll move on. And I think that's really important for people to be aware of, especially in the industry. And there is, there's a lot of cash grabs out there. Uh, We see them constantly and, you know, the focus always needs to be on value. So I I love the way you, uh, I love the way you, you know, crystallize that. And sort of that takes us to the next question, I think is very much related to to this subject, and that is, really, the the general public is, they're very you know typically unaware of the breadth and the complexity of the aging services landscape, you know until it impacts them personally, and then of course, you know they become aware, and quite rapidly, depending on on their needs. Um, this is a big question, so I hopefully you know there's a way to to condense it down, but you know how do operators better prepare the public to plan in advance for long, long-term long care or the care of their loved ones? Is there a way for them to do that in, in a managed sort of environment?
2: I think the first key is accepting your organization's limitations. And what I mean by that is not trying to be everything to everyone. I just don't think it's feasible, especially in the type of operation we run at kind of the we're a lean industry and we know that. Um, and so it, to me, it, it's also a driver. everything to do is around collaboration. There are so many partnerships available in this space that you can promote and you can reach, if you're a senior living organization, you can reach so many more people than your current lead base. If you were able to partner with other companies who are reaching the same demographic. What I would love to see, and this is you know, from a marketing lens, I get pushed back all the time, but if you could be as eager to support the community aging in place within a two to three mile radius of your community as you were to bring in that next move in, mm-hmm. I think it would transform your reputation and your lead base on a longer level, more than we recognize. Um, If we start to become communities that are there for resources and assistance and guidance and education without having it gated to get a lead that we can then email for the next, I kid you not, 18 months. Right. We have to change the way a local community views a senior living community. And it can't just be that once you once you sign up or you become a lead and go through the sales process, you can benefit from our services and our knowledge. Um, and I always say that peer-to-peer marketing, whether someone lives in your community or not, is the strongest sense of marketing. It's the truest sense. And if you reach the external community and the vast number of older adults that you've done the market research, you know your zip code, you know how many people are over 65, you know who you're reaching out to. Um, If you could reach out to them in a different message that just said, hey, we're here for you. Wherever you choose to live, we're here for you. But you can't, organizations can't do that internally because they don't have the resources, rightfully so. But how do you partner with those people who could provide those resources, I think, is something we haven't tapped into yet. Because most brands want to, from what I see, they want to fulfill all the needs and be all the resources. But what happens is they can't do it. And so we end up putting less than quality resources on our website that you can find really on any other website or if you just google resources you're going to find the same links to whether that's medicare medicaid aarp you know tips for fall prevention
1: right yeah that that is uh an excellent piece of advice for anybody out there who's just trying to kind of like you know seo hack their way into rankings and um you know driving website traffic um so let's let's talk briefly about technology and how it's sort of you know it's transforming the landscape really um, the AARP has recently released its 2023 tech trends for 50 plus adults it's a really interesting document and there are a ton of takeaways but one of the things that stood out to me is that you know aging adults are pretty much as obsessed with their cell phones and gadgets and social media as as my two teenagers however this really stood out one of the main differences is that they're using tech to actually help them with their caregiving needs which is really incredibly relevant to senior living so it's a it's a great tool and you know in some respects it's designed with the end user experience in mind however 68% of those folks who were uh, filled out the AARP survey, said they do not believe today's technology is designed with seniors in mind. That's a telling number and a huge gap, I think.
2: Let me start by saying I have a Tesla. My six-year-old who can barely read can do more with my car than I know I to do it. So let's start there. Um, I didn't know there was a live show and apparently that's what we did this Saturday night in the garage. <laughs> but the other interesting part that I think we have to look at from a research and methodology of surveys like this. I love what AARP is doing. Um, I like their H-Tech. I like the H-Tech Collaborative. They are vetting products and sources from a a more discerning eye than other organizations. But when you just look at the survey of 50 plus, when is that? 50 to 105? You know, on the on the opposite side, we would never do a tech survey and say, you know, people age five to fifty. Here's how they interact with tech, and so I think we have to be careful about how we look at this. And if we, and I do know they have a breakdown of this, but looking at, you know, do age cohorts drive some of that user design? But how I look at this when you think about design, and I I kind of gave the analogy to my car because. We are relying on solutions, and I would even say apps, um, technologies that are being created by people, by developers, that tech is their native language. Mm -hmm. That's what they speak. And I say that because how many people, and I think about the companies I've worked with, I don't know that I've met a developer in any project I've worked on in senior living, that's under the age of 40. And I was just thinking, you know, going over some of these, I was thinking about that. I'm like, wow. And you can't fault that, but developers develop from their experiences of what they know and what's native to them. And so when I think the resident and the older adult is telling us that it's not design friendly, we really have to listen to that instead of forcing usage upon them or just saying, no, you'll get it. I also think one thing that we have to understand is technology hasn't been a necessity for this cohort. I look at my mom. I was home two weeks ago, and she's planning out the next few months. She does tons of stuff on her phone, more than I do. She is seriously on her phone all the time. YouTube, music, concerts, she can find anything. She's got her phone hooked up to her car. It takes her everywhere. She has all the radio stations coming in. Her and Siri, I swear, have 20 conversations a day But when we were looking at a calendar, she just wanted a paper calendar because she's tried to do it on her phone and it's just not that intuitive to her. And so you go back to the basic component. What have you done for the last 70 years that has worked out just fine? Right. And I think that we know older adults like convenience and there have been so many things where the world has been opened up from accessibility and conveniences and services, but that's not always what they want. And sometimes the time it takes to figure it out while they have time, they don't want to spend their time on that. And so what we know is that it does take longer to start to feel comfortable with this, but I think we need to be, and there's so many more people that do design much greater than I do or could ever understand. You know, I go to the fact of, I travel almost weekly through American. I was excited when they opened up their chat feature. Cool. I can put my stuff in there. It's still so buggy. I can't, if you want to use a trip credit or a flight credit, oh, we can't do that. If I travel with my children, if I have the reservation tied to more than me, I can't do anything through that. And so I I go down this idea of putting all my chat stuff in, finding my record locators, and then I just get irritated and call and I'd rather wait for an hour. Um, I think about that from so many things. If you look at the user experience and, and the chat features one. I don't know many people that love the chat feature other than younger people that find it refreshing not to have to speak with someone face-to-face, <laughs> right? It, they, it seems quicker to me. That's the Starbucks line. Right. I don't, I, I cannot stand waiting in a Starbucks line because I just think, what am I going to do for 30 minutes? What else could I do with 30 minutes? Sure. Um But I do think it is, We have to listen to what they're telling us when they say the design is not user friendly and they don't like it, rather than trying to keep pushing them into the mainstream of what it looks like. But that's development and that's extra dollars and you can only do it one way. But if we want to get this cohort to trust technology and what it can do for them, we have to find ways to almost meet them in the middle as a hybrid
1: so interesting too and now you know with uh ai and you know chat gpt and that sort of thing um you know really starting to evolve it'll be so fascinating to see how that impacts seniors you know if it is additive to their lives uh or it's just another distraction um so you know speaking of uh the way technology is impacting people's lives. Um, I think on a related note, um, the Alzheimer's Association um, has forecasted that global dementia cases are going to triple by 2050. That's mitigated slightly by, this is in quote marks, positive trends in global education. And so people are, you know, some people, if they can, if they can afford it, are going to You know, have a healthier lifestyle, and maybe that will reduce those incidences. But, you know, that same statistic is tempered by a nearly identical increase in new cases. And that, you know, that runs the gamut Um, smoking, high BMI, blood sugar, you know, diet, lack of exercise. Those are some staggering projections. You know, what are your thoughts about them overall? And, you know, how how can we read between the lines here? What does this really mean on a macro level? for the industry as a whole? I know that would almost require a separate session to answer, but really curious to get your high-level view on that.
2: From the very beginning, when I've looked at either well-being or the study of movement and exercise, we have a way in life of creating buckets of the why we do something. And what I will tell you in younger stages of life, I look at my six and my nine-year-old children, it's about development. It's about being that was go right in your stage. it's about being fast, or can I do well in the sport, or can I race the kid faster that lives next door? How do I not crash my back? It's the idea of the movement is around development and learning new skills and how those skills transfer. I think as we get into adolescence and in our 20s well-being and what I will go to here of of movement is around more vanity or, you know, getting bigger to excel at something. Um, And then we kind of go into our 30s and we start to recognize like, I mean, maybe there's just something about lifestyle here. Maybe uh, our bodies are changing. Metabolism is changing. I can work out and maybe not get the same results as I did as a teenager or young 20s. And then we go to our 40s and 50s and we get more, more of that. Okay, this is This is lifestyle, but there's other reasons we do it. There's still a little bit of vanity. There's still a little bit of um, weight control or anti aging, whatever that looks like. But it's not until we get into like this 60 year old mark where we think, man, I should probably do movement and exercise and cognitive training so I don't get Alzheimer's or dementia. What we're failing to understand is well-being is a cumulative effect from birth, right? We can train our bodies as we get older and we can still make really positive gains no matter what age we start, but it's cumulative. And if we could start to change the education around why do we do this? Why do we do these things? And it's so much greater. It's for our body. It's looking at dual task exercises. And why does my and we're starting to see this if if you just follow any of the different apps on Instagram and fitness apps, fitness has transformed remarkably. I would say in the last five to seven years of getting out of just the big gym scene that's about pushing and lifting weight and doing some treadmill on the side or doing cardio, and it's become a, a total full body approach with an emphasis on mindfulness, with an emphasis on breathing and um, stretching and flexibility. And so we're starting to get this holistic approach. But we still aren't tying into the mainstream of how all of this is what we must do from a young age to keep our minds as equally as healthy. And then we also have to look at how those lifestyle diseases and chronic diseases are reduced when we have a, I would say a comprehensive well-being plan. And so I do think it's about education. And I, you know, my my mom's at this age, I talk about my mom a lot, almost 72, and she's just got back in the gym. She's working out three times a week again, and she feels great. And there's some moments of forgetfulness and in her mind. And we, I think we, we send the wrong message like, oh, if you start being active now, then everything will be okay. But we know that's not what research says. Um, we also know on the flip side, just because you've done everything right your entire life doesn't mean your risk are lower for dementia, Alzheimer's. So I think it's around messaging and I think it's around helping the 20 to 30 to 40 year old understand what is most important for my mind and my mental, my cognitive health is movement and novelty and purpose, like all these things are tied in there. So I know that's a little bit of a winded answer, but it's it's education of how lifestyle choices do affect us and how we can remain active in whatever state we want to be active, but not just for our bodies, it's it's that mind-body connection.
1: I think that's fascinating. I mean, it's like it's a holistic perspective. We live with this idea that you're going to have instant rewards. Um, Hey, I'm going to binge, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas, and then I'm going to go on a diet in January. And it's like, that's not feasible in the long term. So I think this is, to your point, a very interesting mindset and really almost like necessitating a paradigm shift. Um, mm-hmm. because we are so attuned to the instant reward. And, um, you know, if I just order it online, it'll show up at my doorstep and there's no real correlation there to just to well-being. It's it's work. It's hard. It takes time. It takes effort. Um, speaking of effort, you know, and that, that, by the way, that was fascinating. And I am going to really need to unpack that and think about it more because there's there's so much in terms of what you just said that would make for an educational series and content and so forth. So on to the next question. And, you know, hopefully it's it's something that resonates with you. And and I know it's going to be a tough one because you have so many partners and so many success stories, but is there one one success story that you could share in terms of, you know, how LE3 Solutions helped operators, you know, implement the kinds of systems and and practices that do encourage um, resident well-being for the long term?
2: The one to me that is an example that I can give, I think that is what's the word I'm trying to think of. Uh, most generalized, I don't know. You can generalize to multiple operators, if you will. Is as I was talking about uh, when we think about this idea of well-being. It goes back to that idea of body-mind community. When we start a program or an approach and we write on the website that this is what we offer and we all offer the same thing. When you peel back the layers, what you start to find is just because we have a tagline or we have a mission, that doesn't constitute that we know how to execute and deliver upon that from I would say a well-being and engagement side. Again, it goes back to we look a lot at the frequency at what pe- what people do things in our communities. We don't look at the quality or what they're doing. The analogy I would give, and I will I will circle this back. Just because you have an employee that works forty hours a week doesn't make that employee a good employee. And so, just because we have residents that are doing things. If we are not programming evidence-based offerings for them to do, and I say this as kindly as possible, we're wasting our time and their time, right? So when we think about movement, I have said this, there are peers in my space that we have said this for 15 years. If we just do seated exercises, we're not helping, right? If we take people to, we bring them down to a room and we say, we're going to have an exercise class. You're going to invest the next 30 minutes with us. And we hire people either that do not know how to lead, or we depend upon ourselves from someone who doesn't have that background to lead. And we never make people stand up. Yet we're talking about doing balance and exercise. We're not doing that. Right? So it's it's looking at the offerings. If we're talking about, we have a robust cognitive program. If our cognitive program is doing puzzles on whiteboards and playing games and handing out sheets of crossword puzzles, that's not a cognitive program. And instead of saying you're doing this wrong, it's coming in with resources and tools and saying, if we're already doing this, if we're already taking the time or investing dollars and resources. Let's make sure what we're doing is impactful and it's evidence-based. And so that is one way to start to look at when you when you look at programming overall. Um, and so it's we're going to keep doing something that looks very similar. We're not coming in and changing everything, but we're going to make sure that what we're delivering is evidence-based. And if you cannot deliver it with the resources inside your organization, LE3 will find partners to help you do that right? You don't need to go hire an exercise professional to go to your communities. You don't need to go build a new gym in your space. You don't need to create an entire art studio to look at creativity and curiosities. There are so many vendors that are actually less than what you're paying to try to buy these resources or outsource them that are tried and true. They're backed in research. They have studies to prove it, and they're really good partners. So that's one way. you know, the, the other part is when we when I look at vendors and solutions of what we've been able to do, and I, I won't name names, but most people come into this space of senior living. I've done this with at least five or six vendors. and they see it as a sea of same. There's a little bit of knowledge around the different levels of care but they don't understand the cost structure, they don't understand rent rates, they don't understand staffing ratios, they don't understand length of stay, and how each of these different acuity levels, starting at active adult and going all the way to healthcare, seem similar because they're senior living, and maybe they live under one roof, but how different it looks on the inside. And so when they look at their offering, they see, you know, there's X number of communities in the U.S. that could buy my product. Realistically, you have a product that is very good for this subset of communities in this type of setting with this type of staffing structure and this type of need. I'll take an art program, for example. We have an art program. We ship all the supplies to you. We get on. We do virtual arts. Great. You want to sell this for $700 a month to a community. That's very, very aggressive. You're not gonna get much market from that. You have people that actually are already doing really well from this creative side. You need to figure out who they are. You need to make a different type of product for a community that's already in this journey. And so we see that if if a community is already going down this and they just need a little bit of support, then you need a product for them. You need an offering. If they have not embarked at all, that's when you start out with something more robust. But I also think it's this idea that you, 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 start to, you empower communities to learn to do this on their own, right? The idea is that you don't have to have all these vendors supplying you, But how do you become this resource? And you cycle through communities. You give them the tools and resources, and eventually they don't need you as much because they've learned what to do. You're still the expert, right? It's still kind of powered by you. By your thought, but they can graduate out of a three to four hundred dollar offering a month and go to something that's 150 and then use those other dollars to have more variety. Right. So I see that all the time. I see it with fitness offerings, I see it with art offerings, I see it with any type of kind of balance training, um, cognitive training that you if you just have one product for senior living, you better know exactly what segment of senior living you're going in to make it worthwhile
1: right right and literally every dollar spent on a service is, is a dollar that could go to other things and to be discerning and strategic and have a long-term plan in mind is so key especially with inflation and other uh, economic pressures on seniors and with people living longer and so forth It really does put a lot of downward pressure uh on cost and ultimately cost is is a factor for for many many people Uh, that's obvious but um you know we we live in a we certainly live in times when um you know our aging population has not just a lot of options but uh continuing obligations I,
2: i do want to add one thing to that i think the other part of when you look at working when i look at working with vendors and solutions it's going straight to the resident and learning what it is that they want, right? You may have designed your product or solution as best as you knew how, with what information you knew. But now, if you start to talk more about why it may not be well received, why it's not being adopted, if we would just listen and be able to accept. That maybe you missed a little bit, but how can you modify to meet the needs they're telling you that they want it to be and not take that as criticism of, oh, I didn't do it right. Instead of pressing for no, I know this is right, stepping back and saying, maybe this isn't right. And I think, you know, the communities, we get into this mindset that if someone moves in, any service we bring in, we have to find a way to wrap into the monthly rate. No other place operates like this, that just because we told you this was your rent and there are all these services and opportunities available for you, that we've got to find a way to pay for it. What we start to see is residents find value in something, they will pay for it. And while it's difficult to go kind of, you know, from a B to C side for some of these products and vendors, if they get into the community, that's the gold mine. But they sell into the community with this idea that a hundred residents are going to use this product. That's never going to happen. And so if you start to let residents be empowered and families be empowered to pick and choose how they want to use some of these resources as they find them interesting or valuable, they will pay for them because I guarantee they're paying for something otherwise. Right. And so how do we start to look at? If we're truly going to design communities that are built on individual experiences and expectations, we can no longer do what I will say of product, uh, I, or, well, I would say mainstream products. We can no longer say like this community is going to use this because we invest all of our dollars in that and the utilization is not going to probably be ever as high as we want it because people just aren't attracted to everything. And that's a good thing, right? And so if we would take away this idea that we have to rope all of these offerings and lifestyle services into one rate and hope that everyone uses it equally, one, we can't deliver on that, so that's not good. Um, But if we lowered our rate and we let people gravitate towards what they found interested and pay a fair market rate, I I think we start to look a little bit differently of who our consumer is. Um, And and the consumer doesn't always have to be the senior living community or the senior living organization. I mean, that's, you know, that's two, three, four. When you look at goals, those are the goals. If we can start to look at these lifestyle programs as more individually designed rather than community dictated.
1: Final question, Sarah. and really this speaks to some of the some of the downward pressures on the industry as a whole but i think they also it also speaks to you know modern day lifestyle and that is that you know for the majority of people their personal and professional lives are intersecting and it's almost impossible to separate them and and i think that applies to a variety of, of age groups certainly people are working longer they're living longer and there's a lot of stressors you know that are just under the surface as those as well as those that are you know they're they're more evident in our day-to-day life. So, you know, are you seeing the beginnings of a of a shift whether it's seismic or not in how senior living professionals are approaching the mental well-being of their staff and the residents alike? Cuz they obviously we're still undergoing these shifts. COVID is is on the wane hopefully, you know knock on wood, but it's still it's not going away anytime soon either. It's certainly um Incidences are are uh, decreasing, but there's just a lot to be aware of in terms of lifestyle. So how do you how do you balance that out? And I you know would love to hear your perspective on that.
2: Yeah, it's so funny that we're talking about this. I started writing an article this morning, and the title is "Person or Professional Leadership and Personal Complexities." Are we all just living the best life we can? Um, and, and I. I'll keep my personal story out of this, but when I look at resident well being and I look at staff well being, we know there has to be something that changes. I'm going to start on the resident side and then I'll go to staff. On the resident side, I think we discount the magnitude that resilience has on someone's personal well being. And what I love from Older adults and just listening, like if you ask any question in life, I promise you get good advice because they've been through all these experiences. Everything that we're fretting about and chaotic and how we're operating and but I feel like sometimes they sit back and they just say it'll get better, right? Like I've, I've done all this, I've lived through this, I've seen this happen. There's light at the end of the tunnel. So I think us. Pulling out those stories of resilience to learn what true well-being is from experiences and decisions that were made and how you overcome. We can't get rid rid of that life doesn't throw us challenges, but it's our response to those challenges. And I think we have a lot to learn. I don't think we need to say, oh, older adults, terrible mental well-being. We need to help them. I don't think we're. We don't have enough professionals to go in and say, let's help. I and mean, we can barely get a geropsychiatric ger- or a psychologist into a community. That is rare, right? There's just not that many to go around. And so we rely on social services for that. The other part that I think would change the way we look at mental well-being and would change the culture of well-being for residents Is senior living becomes this offering that saves people from their homes. We saved you from your home. Come live with us. It's going to be great because we knew you were living at home and you were lonely and you were isolated. We're really assumptive in that. Because we think that we are offering residents a much better life than what they had, granted it is true a lot of times, we don't go into the hard conversations that need to happen with residents. Instead of in those first few weeks, first 90 days, understanding this transition of what just took place and saying, let's have the hard conversations. What do you miss about your home? What is different here? How does the schedule impact what you want to do? We just shut down to that. And we think that we gave them this safe haven that they moved into. And so we don't talk about the hard stuff. And there's a lot of hard stuff. If you're transitioning, that's a difficult transition. Not that it's not the right one, but we have to talk about it the grief behind it is immense. So that's one side. And I think when we look at organizations, I see a lot of organizations doing this, and I heard about a lot from COVID, whether that was taking an apartment and making it a respite kind of new break room or relaxation room, giving people moments to check out during their day because we knew they were burnt out and we know it's still happening, that's a start. But we have to, in the same breath that we're saying, we're we're creating these spaces and we're supporting you in your mental well-being. We have to understand that mental well-being and resetting is a moment of checking out, right? It's a moment of stepping away. And if you're telling me you support this, but we don't have staffing that enables me to step away for 15 minutes to get this peace of mind, then how do I do this? I think the other part is looking at mental well-being has to be modeled. And when I think about this, I think about if you're the CEO of a company, if we're talking about mental well-being, can you model this behavior that it's okay to check out? It's okay to give a little bit of self-love. It's okay to be Selfish in these moments and maybe say, I can't do that today. I can't travel there because I've got to work on my life, my family. Those are all important things. But it's not just a CEO. It's how does the community leadership, how does your, you know, your immediate boss model that? And if if you're the boss, how are you modeling it? Um, when we send emails, are we respecting people's times? Are we demanding an answer right away? Um you know, I I it works for me because I have my own business, but I checked out yesterday at a kid's birthday and some fun runs. And it's like I. These people depend upon me more than my work does. And I have to be OK admitting that and not feel like I'm not I'm, I'm not doing my clients a disservice or not working as hard as I should, because I say, you know what, I'm not available. And so. It it takes time and space, and I think until we figure out staffing, it's going to be an ongoing struggle to support mental well-being in a realistic way. But I think, again, we need to rely on people outside of our organization. Do I think this is HR's responsibility to figure out how to have a program that supports mental well-being? Maybe someone's qualified, but maybe not. Is it an extra day of PTO that we give you once a year? I don't think so. That one day is good, but what about the other, you know, whatever number of work days there are in a year? Um, I think it's, it's transparency and it's saying, yes, there are some ways to look at work-life balance. And just because you're supposed to work eight to five, if you cannot get here at eight o'clock because you're a single mom and you have commitments to get your children to school, I will work with your schedule, right? It's it's not saying, well, then everybody else wants their schedule adjusted. No, people are kind, right? Um, and so I do think it's figuring out what flexibility looks like and, and helping people balance life and work because it is it's so intertwined more than ever has been. And I don't see that ever going backwards.
1: Well, thank you, Sarah. That is a really great place to uh, wrap up today's podcast. That's some real food for thought. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to share your insights and experience with our listeners. You are, as mentioned previously, very busy, very in demand and and widely sought after.
0: So your insights are, are quite valuable. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Canopy IQ podcast. Be sure to subscribe to get notified when new episodes release and learn more by visiting canopyadco.com.